afternoon and welcome to the 126th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I discuss the wildfires in Oregon and California with Erica Kuligowski, Jim Whittington, and Erica Fisher. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 14th, 2020, there are 29,114,477 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 28,273,312 yesterday, Friday. 6,531,437 of those are in the United States, and that's up from 6,430,860 reported Friday. There are now a total of 194,238 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 192,616 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now with a story about COVID risk and wildfire. Headline, smoke from wildfires can worsen COVID-19 risk, putting firefighters in even more danger. This appeared in the conversation on September 11 by Luke Montrose. Two forces of nature are colliding in the Western United States and wildland firefighters are caught in the middle. Emerging research suggests that the smoke firefighters breathe on the front lines of wildfires is putting them at greater risk from the new coronavirus with potentially lethal effects. At the same time, firefighting conditions make precautions such as social distancing and hand washing difficult, increasing the chance that once the virus enters a fire camp, it could quickly spread. Today, there is a growing consensus among researchers that air pollution, specifically the very fine particles called PM2.5, influences risk of respiratory illness. These particles are 50 times smaller than a grain of sand and can travel deep into the lungs. Italian scientists reported in 2014 that air pollutants can increase the viral load in the lungs and reduce the ability of specialized cells called microphages to clear out viral invaders. Researchers in Montana later connected that effect to wood smoke. They found that animals exposed to wood smoke 24 hours before being exposed to a pathogen ended up with more pathogen in their lungs. The wood smoke exposure decreased the microphage's ability to combat respiratory infection. Coronavirus research now suggests that long-term exposure to PM 2.5 air pollution produced by sources including wildfires, power plants, and vehicles may make the virus particularly deadly. Scientists at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health looked at county-level data nationwide this spring and found that even a small increase in the amount of PM 2.5 from one U.S. county to the next was associated with a large increase in the death rate from COVID-19. While small increases in PM 2.5 also raised the risk of death from other causes for other adults, 
the magnitude of the increase for COVID-19 was about 20 times greater. Taken together, these findings suggest that air pollution, including wood smoke, could increase the risk that wildland firefighters will develop severe COVID-19 symptoms. Doctors have also found lingering heart and lung damage in some COVID-19 patients, raising additional concerns for people in physically demanding jobs like firefighting. The risk of the virus spreading probably doesn't surprise seasoned firefighters. They're already familiar with what's called camp crud, a combined upper and lower respiratory illness accompanied by cough and fatigue that has become common in firefighting camps. The illness seems to ramp up at the end of the season, which is in line with the idea that repeated exposure to smoke may suppress the immune system and make the body more vulnerable to infection. Further evidence that wildfire smoke may impact the risk of viral infections can be found in an influenza study that looked at 10 years of air pollution data in Montana. The results indicate that wildfire smoke exposure influences flu rates months later. So what can be done to avoid the spread of COVID-19 among wildland firefighters? Guidance released in May from the National Interagency Fire Center, which coordinates wildland firefighting resources in Western states, acknowledges that wildfire smoke may lead to an increased susceptibility to COVID-19 infection, worsen the severity of the infection, and pose a risk to those who are recovering from serious COVID-19 infection. The National Wildfire Coordinating Group encourages fire teams to make sure personal protective equipment is available and to maintain records of symptoms so illnesses can be tracked and the virus contained. Its guidance also calls for camps to be outfitted for better hygiene, such as adding hand washing stations and mobile shower units, as well as providing access to medical care, making isolation possible and coordinating cross-agency communication about the public health risks. Single-person tents would also allow for more effective social distancing. All of that is harder to carry out during quickly changing fire conditions. Fire camps may include hundreds of personnel. One administrative control being implemented is to create firefighter pods or small groups that work, eat, and bunk together away from other similar pods. This limits opportunities for spreading the virus and makes containment easier if a positive case is identified. Camp personnel can also help stop the spread by having coronavirus test kits on hand and following protocols for pre-screening, quarantining, and removing infected firefighters from the field. The safety of rural Western communities depends on the wildland firefighters and their ability to respond to emergencies. Protecting their health helps protect public health too. The article was, Smoke from Wildfires Can Worsen COVID-19 Risk, Putting Firefighters in Even More Danger, appeared in the conversation by Luke Montrose, September 11th. Okay. Now let's turn to our conversation today. I'm really excited to introduce our speakers and I wanna thank them in advance for responding to a last minute call to appear on COVID calls. Um, it's keeping, it, this is a, a podcast about a disaster. So we're constantly keeping up with a disaster and then other disasters emerge in the midst of the disaster. So I really appreciate their time today. Erica Fisher, PhD, PE is an assistant professor of civil and construction engineering at Oregon State University. Her research interests revolve around innovative approaches to improve the resilience and robustness of structural systems affected by natural and man-made hazards. She has led a team of multidisciplinary scientists in post-wildfire reconnaissance in Paradise, California. 
Dr. Fisher sits on the board of directors of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute and is an active member of the American Society of Civil Engineers Fire Protection Committee. Dr. Erica Kuligowski is a sociologist and fire protection engineer from 2002 to 2020. Dr. Kuligowski worked as a group leader in the research social scientist and engineer in the engineering laboratory at the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Dr. Kuligowski has expertise in decision-making and response behavior under imminent threat, emergency communications and evacuation modeling. In October of this year, she'll move to Melbourne, Australia and join the engineering school at RMIT University as a vice chancellor's senior research fellow studying evacuation and bushfires. And my third guest, return guest to COVID calls, Jim Whittington, He's a public information officer for over 20 years and now a consultant with Incident Services, has responded to over 90 large and complex wildfires. He's been the spokesperson for incidents of national and international interest, including the Cerro Grande, Rodeo, Chedesky, Wallow, and Yarnell Hill fires. He has also worked with media as part of the Granite Mountain Hotshots Memorial Service team and led the PIO function for the Iron 44 Memorial Service. Whittington is a qualified lead instructor for a number of FEMA and National Wildfire Coordinating Group classes. He has worked for the National Archives, Records Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, United States Forest Service, National Park Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. Oh, Erica Fisher, Erica Kuligowski, and Jim Whittington, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. So let's start the way we uh, usually do, just like to find out where you're calling in from. And maybe you can give us the dual update, if you would, what's happening with the pandemic there and also uh, what's happening with, with fires. Erica Kuligowski, can I start with you, please? Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for having me here, Scott. I'm excited to, um, to be among the guests and to talk about this important issue. So I'm in Maryland, actually, so I won't have much to say about the fires out west. We do have wildfires, though, um, certainly not, not anywhere near the extent of what we're talking about today. Um, but as an um, update on our COVID cases, um, that did you want me to talk about that too? Okay. So in Maryland, um, we're fluctuating between 400 and 800 new cases reported since the previous day. Um, we have 117,000 total cases with deaths around 3,800 and a positivity rate of 3.5%. So I'm actually in Montgomery County, um, which is a more densely populated county than the others. So within Maryland, um, most of the state is under uh, a loosened kind of phase three restriction. Whereas in Montgomery County, we're, we're still under phase two, we are we're, they've just reopened playgrounds a couple months ago, pools, gyms with restrictions. Most of our retail, um, it's very restricted capacity. Um, same for houses of worship and restaurants, mostly outdoors. So for the most part, um, we're still on some pretty kind of high restrictions as far as uh, COVID in relation to the rest of the state. Well, thank you, Erica, and you're you're holding down the Chesapeake in this call for us. But you know, I'm interested because your uh, last almost 20 years in your career, you were at NIST, which we tend to think of. I tend to think of as a place where they did a lot of the post uh, World Trade Center collapse modeling studies. It's a place where they really push the limits in terms of you know fire and structure modeling. 
And yet you've also kept up with wildland fire. How have you been able to do that from Maryland? Great question. So um, we have a team um, and I led that team for a few years that studies a lot of the physical science aspects of wildfire. And um, a few of them um, perform studies um, often led by Alex Marangides um, of fires that occur in the West. And so they have done case studies of fires in Calif uh, California, Colorado, and Texas. And that involves just a lot of back and forth um, with being on the ground right after the fires, uh, several weeks, six up to six weeks on the ground there in, uh, in California, at least for this mm. most recent fire, um, studying the paradise. Um, it, the campfire. And so it is, it really is a, a great relationship that NIST has with the officials out in California, Colorado, Texas, and, and other states that, that um, have wildfires and that when something happens, we're actually um, called and then we, we make decisions on whether or not we're going to go for an initial reconnaissance. And then after that, we make a decision if we're going to do a full scale investigation of, of that. And we work very closely with the uh, officials on the ground there. But thank you for that, because I think we're, a lot of the people who listen to COVID calls are really interested in disaster investigations. And it's always um, in the United States, we don't have one central body that does that. It's spread across many different agencies at different levels in the in the government. That's not the national construction safety team that, that you're talking about that enables that. It's a separate body within NIST, a field team. Yeah, so it is the National Construction Safety Team. Um, and we have done, I'm saying we, I, I was there for 18 years, I'm not anymore. But um, under that NCST, they, they performed three investigations, the World Trade Center, the Rhode Island nightclub, and the Joplin tornado. And they're in the process of studying Hurricane Maria. We also have under the FIRE Act and, and other um, um, other acts, we have the ability to, to still do these investigations, just not under NCST. So a lot of those case studies that have happened in the in the fire groups, they have done that outside of NCST, but still very thorough investigation that leads to invest recommendations and, and the like. Okay. We need a we need a whole bunch of great dissertations about the NCST and all that work that you all have been doing. Thanks Agreed. for that. Thanks for that. Jim, let me turn to you. Um again, uh, where are you calling from? What's the fire situation there today? And what's the pandemic situation? So I'm calling from Medford, Oregon. And our fire situation uh, was pretty dire last week. Um, we had uh, a fire start in the urban interface between uh, the town of Ashland and, and Medford. And um, it, it ran pretty hard and um, destroyed uh, large pieces of the towns of Talent and Phoenix, Oregon, uh, displacing a few thousand folks um, taking out uh, a bunch of residences and businesses. Um, now that we have kind of the, the damage assessment or the preliminary ideas to what the, the damage was, um, it's pretty clear that um, the, the places that were hit the hardest were uh, apartments and trailer parks uh, that were home to you know, retirees on fixed income, uh, farm workers, uh, other kinds of folks in that economic stratus. Uh, and so those are typically the folks who are least likely to be able to withstand uh, something like that. So there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of folks out of their homes right now. A lot of folks in shelters here in Southwest Oregon. Um, 
And, you know, there are some, some not only physical, but some psychic holes in our community. They're going to take a, a long time uh, to repair if they ever really do. Um, so uh, I, we were, my family was about um, two, two and a half miles away from the fire when it stopped. We were ready to go. We had everything packed, uh, but we never got the, the final call to evacuate, uh, thankfully. So we came out of it a lot uh, luckier than than uh, many other families did. And so, uh, you know, we're just gonna, we're gonna start on that road to, to recovery um, as soon as we can. But I think before we can do that, really, we have to figure out what we're doing with the rest of the fires around Oregon. We've got two large fires, uh, one to the Northwest of us and one to the Southwest of us, they're still going. And we've been uh, covered in uh, really unhealthy levels of smoke um, since probably last Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, and that may break up this week. We'll see. Um, but uh, right now we're still under it. Um, in terms of um, COVID, uh, Medford is doing reasonably well. Uh, Jackson County, the county we're in, um, uh, still is reporting new cases. Uh, we have, but it's pretty consistent. It doesn't seem to be spiking. Um, all of our schools are remote uh, this year. Um, from kindergarten on up to, to high school. And uh, I think for the most part, people uh, are abiding by the, the basic safety protocols, wearing masks and, and trying to keep their distance. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of uh, violations of that. So I think we're doing okay. There's still some folks that you know are not going to do that come hell or high water. Uh, but uh, the majority of folks, um, are trying to get along with everybody else. So I think we're, we're actually pretty fortunate in that regard. Uh, but again, that combination of fire, smoke, and COVID is a, a really tough deal uh, for a lot of people and um, very stressful, I think, particularly on kids. So we'll have to be watching that uh, in the future. All three of my guests today are active on Twitter. And uh, Jim, we were talking about this a little bit before. I mean, you were sort of live tweeting the experience of packing and getting ready to leave. As a person who's used to being on the other side of giving those orders, what was that like? It was strange. It was really strange. Um, you know, we in, in Wildland Fire, we always joke that you don't want to work a fire on your home unit uh, because there's too much stress that in, is involved with the people you know and your family and everything else. You want to go somewhere so you can just concentrate on the incident that's there and uh, deal with that and help that community. Um, and so uh, it was the first time I ever had to evacuate or had to think about evacuating. And um, it was it was quite different. And I'm um, used to you know telling folks what to do and how to do it. And here's your checklist and all that good stuff. And we did have a decent checklist for earthquakes, but we didn't really have anything set up for wildland fire, which is which is probably on me. Uh, so now we're revising the family plans and. Um, we have it put together a little bit better, but uh, it's it's um, it's quite jarring actually uh, when you when you get down to it, and you recognize that the reason you may have to evacuate is because that fire is uh, running through other parts of your community and headed your way. Uh, that makes it even tougher. Erica Fisher, can we come to you? Uh, same question: Where are you calling from, and and what's the pandemic looking like there? And and same with the fires. Sure, Scott, thank you so much for having me. And Jim, I'm, I'm glad that you're safe and your family is safe. 
Um, so I'm, I'm calling in from Corvallis, Oregon, where Oregon State University is located. Um, with regards to the pandemic, um, we, the, the whole state of Oregon has, has been um, fortunate, at least in the numbers of, of cases. Um, we've had under 30,000 cases within the entire state, just about 500 deaths, um, which is a lot lower than our neighboring states of Washington and California. Um, we, in, in Benton County, where Corvallis is located, we have, in the whole county, um, we're averaging about two to three cases a day, new cases a day, um, which is, which is pretty low compared to the rest of the country. Um, so we're on the decline, but, uh, um, our, our K through 12 schools, um, are remote for the first six weeks, um, potentially, you know, the you know, the rest of the calendar year. Um, Oregon State University is mainly remote. Um, there's some issues with with going fully remote with international students. Um, so, but the vast majority of our classes are remote, um, same as, as we were in the spring. Um, but, uh, you know, Oregon has a lot of um, kind of mom pop shop, uh, retail, food, beverage industries that um, have been pretty hit pretty hard um, due to this pandemic and due to everything shutting down. Um, we've been, you know, lucky because our cases are lower, so things are able to open up um, here in Corvallis. Um, the town manager has approved uh, all the restaurants and um, food and beverage kind of establishments to set up these patios and the parking spaces outside. Um, and so that's been really nice to go out and support our local businesses and make sure they stay afloat. Um, it's been a lot of GoFundMe <laughs> accounts. I'm sure, you know, my, you know, the, the other guests can talk about that as well in their neighborhoods. I'm sure it's the same there. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we just hope these, these uh, local businesses stay stay afloat for the next couple of months and and we can kind of get through this um that being said oregon state university is on a quarter system so we haven't started classes yet um our classes don't start until a week from wednesday so our students haven't necessarily come back yet so um if if you've seen any of the the reporting on college towns and colleges and college campuses with COVID cases. Um, I think this this fire, these fires, and the return of our students um, could potentially create kind of a perfect storm situation um, for for COVID spreading. Um, and I know I know you have questions later on, kind of touching upon that. Um, as it pertains to the fire, um, we haven't been directly impact we haven't been we're not we don't are not under any evacuation warning here in Corvallis um but um we've had um our our air quality indices um above 300 for at least the last six days um depends on where you get the reports from like local news versus what Oregon State University is reporting it kind of varies widely um but uh, we, so we've all been kind of on lockdown for the last six days. Um, and Corvallis is is um, offering up shelter in one of our middle schools. Obviously, you know, since our schools are remote, um, our, our school gyms are wide open. Uh, so they've kind of set up cots every six feet and um, tried to provide space um, 
a lot of our local restaurants and um, food shelters are coming together to hand out food to to those who have had to evacuate. So, um, you know, we have a lot of smoke here, but um, I'm glad that Corvallis can act as a, a safe haven for those who need to evacuate. Erica, if, let me stay with you and, and bring Jim in as as well, since you're both out there. Can you tell us a little bit about these these fires and you can assume people like myself who have a, a great interest and a relatively limited understanding about how you will think about wildland fire as different in in the kind of ecosystems you're talking about there versus Arizona or Colorado or other places. What set these fires apart? Um, how did they start? Can you give us just a little bit of that basic context to get us going, Erica? Let me start with you on that. Um, so it depends on what fire you're talking about. So, um, you know, uh, not all of these fires started the same way. Um, some of these start fires, um, you know, I think everyone now knows there's there was like the gender reveal smoke bomb that went off in California. Um, you have uh, human, you know, humans starting these fires. You have uh, lightning starting these fires. Um, and it's uh, honestly, it's not that much different from what normally starts these fires. Normally there's just a mixture across the board of, of how these fires get started. Um, I, you know, we had, we had a particularly exceptionally dry winter and spring. Um, and uh, we had a pretty mild fire season, um, June, July, August. And um, I was on a number of calls with fire researchers um, in the Cascadia region and they talked about this like nonstop since since April and March that we're gonna have a really bad fire season. It's gonna be the worst we've ever seen, and the smoke is gonna be um, horrible, and it's gonna be really bad because we're in the middle of this pandemic that's targeting lungs. Um, so um, I think that we just have this these these weather conditions we had a, a huge streak of hot weather here in in Oregon at least in Benton County most homes we don't we don't have air conditioning in the Pacific Northwest um, we we don't get hot weather um, it is a very temperate environment there might be one week where we have 80 degree weather or um, might dip into the 90s a little bit everyone complains for a few days and then it goes back into the 70s and we're over it um, but we had multiple weeks um, of 90 degree weather upwards over 100 degrees which is um, unheard of for Oregon um, and everyone is at home. <laughs> Every no one's traveling, so summer is a big travel time. Um, so you just kind of compound all these these issues together. Um, I'll, I'll let Jim kind of chime in, um, but you know, one thing that's that's abnormal for Oregon is that our fires don't normally encroach this much on our communities. Um, we are the fires occur pretty much in the wildland. Um, they might, you know, you know, we had the Eagle Creek fire. It started encroaching on Portland and Portland's water supply, and and that just, you know, that was, you know, the more most recent one that that was, you know, kind of getting close. But for the most part, they stay pretty much in the wildland. Um, and these fires are taking out communities. Um, you heard Jim's story, so um, I think these are kind of the bigger the bigger issues that we're dealing with right now in the, in the, on the West coast and Western United States. Jim, can I bring you in on that? How are these fires behaving in, in ways that you've seen before something new here? 
Um, yeah, let me let me talk about cause a little bit. Erica mentioned, you know, the the different kinds of ignitions we get. Um, what made um, this fire year different is that for the second year in a row, the weather patterns didn't set up like you would expect them to. Uh, last year we had a big loopy jet stream, uh, which kept the lower 48 uh, kind of cool and kind of wet and brought a lot of fire to uh, Canada and Alaska. And this year, um, the weather pattern that usually brings fire to Alaska in the spring uh, hung out over Siberia and brought them a heck of a lot of fire. And then uh, in the Southwest where we usually have a monsoonal um, flow of moisture in from the Pacific, that never really materialized. And we never had the high pressure system setting up over the four corners, which is a typical uh, feature of our Western summers. And because of that, <clears throat> here in the Northwest in Northern California, uh, we had conditions that were ripe for fire, but we never got the ignitions that the, the lightning bust would that would spin up from the Southwest around that high pressure system in the four corners uh, would come up with enough energy to drop lightning, but not much rain. And so we typically get two or three of those pulses of lightning a year. We didn't have any through uh, the 1st of September uh, because of the situation in the Southwest. And um, we're starting to feel pretty good about things because we're like, okay, we've got constant fire, but we haven't had that ignition event or that, that uh, weather event that really pushes us over the edge and um, really kind of taxes our resources to the extreme. Um, but again, it was constant. We did have some fires on the ground. We did have a little bit of lightning and then Northern California got their lightning bust. And then we had this east wind event that came through the Sierras and came through the Cascades uh, from the, the Great Basin, dry, warm air flowing through the gaps in the mountains, flowing downhill. And it took the established fires and any new fires that got started uh, mm -hmm. last Monday, Tuesday, it took them and really blew them, blew them up and uh, had incredible growth on some of these fires because of that. And uh, that's because the conditions were there and, and ready for large fire growth. They were just you know, looking for a, a factor. And in this case, it was wind. Um, and I think one of the big things that we have to think about is, um, yeah, it's not uh, unheard of for there to be big fires on the west side of the Cascades or even in the coastal range. But what we're seeing is conditions lining up more and more often to where that is possibly or is the case. And so we're, we're having to start thinking about, okay, now the, the west side of the Cascades are online uh, and we have to plan for that every year. And maybe it doesn't go off, but there's a decent chance it will. And uh, we've been, kind of been flirting with that, I think, over the last uh, decade or so, uh, we're getting some larger and larger fires, more frequent on the west side of the Cascades, particularly in Southwest Oregon, where it's not nearly as wet as it is up in Eugene, Corvallis, Portland area. Um, uh, but now I think I think we can officially say that the conditions have changed enough to where um, this is gonna be a concern going forward. Maybe not every year, but uh, it's something we're gonna have to be thinking about constantly. The New York Times had on, as a headline on the front page for two days running um, about the fires and also about the fact that the number of deaths was not known. And, and of course, that sent a chill up anybody's spine who followed what happened in California there with the campfire in, in Paradise. And um, do you know now, Jim, I'll just keep stay with you for a second. Do, do, we, do they have a casualty count at this point? 
Um, so uh, the last I read, it was in the 20s. Uh, but I think there's still some some search activities going on and there's still some missing persons who haven't been accounted for. Um, so, um, you know, it's tough. It's tough when um, you have high wind pushing fires quickly through uh, communities. Uh, it, you just don't have a lot of time to figure things out. And so uh, those are the situations that are the, you know, the big watch out situations where um, you can possibly get people lost in in. Yeah. the uh, the mess and and not get folks out in time. Erica Kuligowski, let me come to you. There's a couple things here. Just um, what they Erica Fisher and Jim were describing, um, changing climatic conditions, also just important weather conditions for this particular year, ignitions, um, and then also the sort of rapid intensification of a fire. It's making me think, uh, you know, last year I had the chance to do some research in Portugal, actually. And, you know, they've been having these mega fires in central Portugal and Portugal, central Portugal, is not unknown to have fires. What was unknown was the rapidity of the growth. These are eucalyptus fires. And as it's getting hotter in continental Europe, these fires are, are surprised. So it's, you take people who have a certain familiarity with it, with fire behavior, but then you sort of change the speed and the intensity with which they occur now. Uh, and that's led to some mass casualty situations there in Portugal. Um, we've been calling this climate change, right? And the governor of Washington has, has actually called these climate fires. I think Gavin Newsom has done that as well. Let me get your take on that. Is that a useful distinction at this point? I think it's a great question. And I've been thinking about this. Um, I actually do. I'd love to hear what my colleagues think. But so we know, and, and fire experts know the three big drivers, right? You mentioned climate um, and also fire exclusion. So the buildup of fuels due to suppression and, and the lack of safe burning. And then also people expanding into the wooey. Um, and so we know the numbers of fires are not increasing, but the acreage burned is. And so, but we've heard from, from the administration, that so we've heard from our president that he wants to blame the fires on forest management. Um, but you know, that's only one of the three drivers I mentioned and not likely the main one, I would say. And so if we continue to blame fires on forest management, I, I think that nothing will be done with for the other drivers, especially the difficult ones like climate change. And so if we're not honestly acknowledging and identifying the drivers, I don't think anything will be done about it. And I think branding in this country is, is pretty big. If we're not calling out issues like racism, um, we don't do anything about it. And I don't think anything will be done about it. We have to call them out in, in order to address the issue. And I fear also related to this, that we keep calling these events unprecedented. Um, and so I look the definition up, I wanna get it right, never before known or experienced. And so taking this literally, we know that they're getting worse, right? We know that they're going to keep happening. I don't think it helps to, to continue to call them unprecedented. I think, yes, we may not have experienced them before, but we know now that they're going to keep happening. We know that they're getting worse. We can't say now that we didn't know. So I, I kind of 
it's a bit of a cop out, if you will. I mean, if we only look back, then yes, they'll, every year they'll be unprecedented. But if we look forward at these climate fires, right? If we look forward and we're thinking about what actually is going to happen, um, we'll be able to plan for them. And so not what they look like now, but what they look like in the future. And so, you know, coming back to your question, I, I think branding them as climate fi fires will actually potentially help us to think about, yes, these are related to climate change. These are going to get worse. What are they gonna look like in the future so we can start planning for them now? I, I really like this discussion because you know those who follow these these kinds of debates that we're having right now are aware that there's sort of an ongoing discussion about whether the term natural disaster has any utility for us anymore. And and now you've sort of you've brought wildland or wild into that discussion. Climate also, you I mean, on the face of it, climate may seem like an innocuous term, but in the United States at least, climate is hyper politicized as a term. So whereas wildland might be um, doesn't inspire people necessarily to think about politics. I think this is part of what the discussion is about. When you use that term climate fire, I don't think you have to explain to most people that that also, that invokes a whole range of discussions around what's been happening in the United States around climate policy. Erica Fisher, can I get a, uh, I just want to get a quick round on this from, from you and then from Jim too. Are you about to start changing all of your terminology now, your lab, your, your paper, are you going to adopt climate fire? Or are you going to be slow, climate um, slower to adopt this terminology or what? Um, well, I, I liked the points that, that you know, Eric, the other Erica, um, you know, brings, brings up um, because I do think that, that wildfires have traditionally been studied by forest ecologists, by fire scientists. Um, it's excluded the conversation with civil engineers. It's excluded the conversation with city planners. Um, and we're seeing more and more that the, the fires encroach on our communities and they burn our communities. We, we saw what happened in, in Paradise in, the, in, in Santa Rosa or, you know, Jim just talked about what happened in Medford. Um, and so we're seeing the fires encroach on our civil infrastructure and have an impact on the way our cities actually operate. Um, so I would love for for the the fire term to to encompass you know more disciplines than just forest ecologists and and fire scientists because we it it, it impacts more than just the wildland um, and we're seeing and you know this this unprecedented I I loved you know that that you looked up the term because um, we we know it's going to get worse. Um, yet, if you look at what's happening in our cities, literally today, um, there is a mass out migration because um, everyone's working from home and they don't want to be cooped up in these tiny little apartments if they're going to be working remotely. People are losing their jobs. They can't afford their apartments anymore. Um, you can get almost two months rent free in Portland with like a, a like a signing bonus. Um, there, the apartment buildings in Portland are forty percent built. So, um, as we're seeing people move out of the cities into these areas more and more, um, these are not unprecedented. We can't keep using these terms to kind of 
um, mask that this this may not happen again. It's going to happen again. Um, it's going to happen in the same community. Paradise was evacuated um, due to fires just a few days ago. So it happens in the same communities over and over again. Um, and we we need to be clearer on how we talk about this so that people understand the areas that they're moving into. Um, I, I think the use of, of climate fires is, is great. We need to um, shed light on why this is happening, why it, why it is getting worse. Um, you know, the, the, there's, there's no like, <laughs> there's no debate when, you know, when we see these higher temperatures, we see more acreage burned. Like it's, it, there, we, we see it over and over again. Um, so, you know, using the correct terminology and, and communicating to the general public um, without using these kind of like vague terms of, of wildfires. These aren't wildfires anymore. They're urban fires and, and um, they're destroying, you know, our communities. Mm -hmm. That's a, there's another Jim. I want to get a get your take on this because and Erica has just sort of brought another layer into this that calling it wildfire might exclude the climate change understanding, but it also um, just doesn't pay attention to the fact that what used to be wild is now either wildland urban interface or is itself urban. I don't know what what's your take on this sort of modification of language and the way we talk about this phenomenon, Jim? Yeah, I think we, we have to kind of look look for a different way of talking about it. Um, uh, you know, getting back to Erica Kay's um, comment about uh, the way we phrase things, you know, um, what, what the phrasing allows us to do is to pretend that the future doesn't exist, that it allows us to look backwards. And uh, instead of saying, you know, historical, once in a lifetime, these kinds of things, we need to say, hey, this is the first of many to come. And uh, I think we start putting it that way, uh, it may get some people's attention. I, um, uh, and then on the, the factors, the three that she mentioned are, are right on. Um, there's also some, some secondary and tertiary factors like policy, uh, hiring practices, budgets, all those kinds of things that go into um, uh, the wildland fire environment and how we uh, interact with it. Um, and so um, all of those things considered, it's pretty clear that climate change is the most powerful driver right now, and it's only going to get uh, more powerful as we go forward. And so uh, again, we're not looking at the future, um, we're looking at the past. And I'm pretty sure that there are going to be a number of investigations that come out of this, this fire, fire year from California to Oregon to Washington. And um, inevitably, that ritual of investigation will be looking backwards. What happened? What can we do to keep that from happening? Rather than looking forward and saying, hey, let's figure out what's coming and let's figure out how we're going to deal with it. So we're not having to repeat this cycle over and over again um, in a... In, in the future, so uh, it's a it's a tough deal. It takes uh, a lot of um, psychic and emotional adjustment. I think there are a lot of people in wildland fire who intellectually recognize all this, but still find it difficult to take the next leap of okay, what do we do about it? Okay, let's start planning for it because it's difficult, it's hard, and um, uh, it's outside of our comfort zone, frankly.
remind people that you're listening to COVID calls. And today we're talking about wildfires in the American West and COVID-19 with Erica Kuligowski, Erica Fisher, and Jim Whittington. Erica Kuligowski, let's talk a little bit about the evacuation situation here. This is something that um, people have been writing essays about as early as I think May is maybe the first one I saw worrying about hurricane season and worrying about fire season. Although I'm not sure fire season is a term that is as useful as it used to be either, but still this problem of the compound disaster. So you've got COVID-19, people are already sheltered in a sense, if they're at home, um, they're not moving in ways that they're accustomed to. You have to layer that in with the fire. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with evacuations, um, how they proceeded, problem areas, new things you're seeing? Sure, thank you. Um, so what I've been seeing, I, I kind of want to hone in on on late evacuations, if I can. So I think if if my numbers are correct, and I apologize if they're wrong, that I saw today 35, 35 deaths. I think 24 in California, maybe 10 in Oregon, but Jim and Erica, correct me if I'm wrong, and then one in Washington State, I believe. And so the important point is, is that people are, are dying, but also that from what I've been reading, that they're dying during the, some, the, some portion is dying during the evacuation process um, in their cars or running from their home or, or trying to flee their, their house kind of last minute. What concerns me is, is those leaving late or staying behind, putting themselves in danger, trying to escape the fire last minute or, or being in a house that is unable to protect them from the fire conditions. Um, so even before COVID, there are many reasons why people decide to, to wait and maybe see or not evacuate at all. And these could be they didn't get a warning until late. Uh, they don't feel personally at risk. Um, and we'll maybe come back to that. Uh, Act, waiting for visual confirmation, so wanting to see that this is actually something serious, or waiting to be told in person that they have to leave. So a quote from this weekend I saw was, it's one thing to leave your house, it's another thing being told you have to leave your house. And so there's other reasons people wait and stay, maybe personal work or familial commitments, pets and livestock that they have to take care of, even having mitigated their house and maybe feeling safe and secure that their house will provide them safety. Um, so these are things that we have to understand. So then maybe we can help people make the right decisions. Um, so if if it's work commitments, talking to businesses and telling them the importance of, of helping people make that decision early. Um, if it's pets and livestock, making sure that shelters, and they, they're doing this, accommodating pets, livestock is a harder issue. But late evacuations have occurred before COVID. I think what's what may, may, maybe we want to talk about here is it isn't clear how this is exacerbated by the pandemic. And so there's research ongoing at Berkeley um, to study public response to wildfires and hurricanes during the pandemic. There's also the Converge Center at the University of Colorado where they're funding a significant amount of COVID research because I think it's important for decision makers to, to understand how COVID is affecting people's decisions to evacuate. Maybe it's not being able to decide if a shelter is safe for them or not. 
if they can't even afford to evacuate, if they've lost wages and they may not have gas for their vehicle or maybe money for public transport or money for a hotel. And so it's unfortunately, we don't have a good sense of how COVID is affecting people's decisions. We already know it's that there are factors that can affect people deciding, leaving late. And it, I think potentially that COVID could be exacerbating that effect. And another thing I wanted to bring up, because we're seeing this in different fires, is people waiting for in-person notification. And I think it's really important, especially in COVID, where resources could be um, affected, personnel could be affected by the, by the pandemic. Um, it, might not, it might be that we don't have enough resources to go door to door and tell people that they need to evacuate, especially in fast moving fires. So it's important to be clear to household, please don't wait for someone to come and tell you to go. Please go when you get a warning, even before, as soon as you feel at risk. Um, and, and that would be kind of an important takeaway that I'm, I'm seeing kind of in these fires as well. Erica Kuligowski, if you just stay with us for a second more, because you talked about the research that's ongoing in the midst of this. I think it's probably pretty well established um, that if there are issues of trust with government in a community, that might impede, that might slow evacuation. Yes. Um, and that sometimes tracks to socioeconomic factors and, and race factors. But this might be a different calculus, might it not? I mean, there, you know, it's it might be older folks or people with pre-existing conditions or health conditions who might also be um, resistant to taking those evacuation warnings? I mean, bring us into the kind of questions that researchers you think are asking right now about this. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's the, some of the things we were thinking about is um, how are people making decisions? How are people weighing the risks associated with this? Um, you know, if I have a sick family member, how am I making a decision of, of do I go to a shelter? Do I go to a hotel? Um, if I have, um, you know, some, if I'm sick or those, those kinds of things. And it's important that I think the issue is we, we're, we don't have a lot of guidance for people who are trying to weigh those decisions. Um, you talked about the kind of the political atmosphere. There's a lot of different ways in which we're talking about risks associated with COVID. And it varies from state to state. It varies from community to community. And there's not one kind of place that everybody can go and feel that is a credible source. There's also kind of a potential um, dis, um, distrust in science, which is troublesome, especially during you know COVID. And so what I've been talking with folks and thinking about uh, people who are thinking about hurricane evacuations is helping people how can we help people weigh these risks? Mm. Um, people have talked about maybe we give decision trees to, to individuals, uh, have that kind of guidance be decision trees. If I'm in this type of situation, um, I'm in this type of monetary situation with this type of health, with these types of risks, these are the options that are safe for me. And it's just, there's nothing like that out there to help people develop their individual kind of COVID related safety plans, especially during concurrent disasters where we have to evacuate from wildfires. Jim, what Erica Kuligowski is talking about here, I think 
mostly, although she mentioned distrust in science, is, is mostly an effort to communicate in good faith and that messages will be received from people who want to receive that information. Um, and now we're, we're living in a year in which um, we have a president who has put science on trial every single day. And strangely, or at least strange to me, I guess, um, Oregon has become a center of focus for the national media as a place where there might be uh, hordes of scary Antifa around every corner. I mean, there's a lot of disinformation campaigning that has been focused on Oregon, been focused on Portland, I guess, not Oregon, maybe not. And there were some pretty quick conspiracy theories that were up about evacuation and, and physical harm that people might be under. Um, I don't know. What do you? What do you? How much of an impact is that having on people's evacuation decision making? Do you think? Well, I think anecdotally, um, there are de definitely stories of that having an effect on folks. People staying because they think that uh, uh, different kind of people are going to come in and steal their stuff. And this is not a particularly new thing, as far as I can tell. Uh, but it is uh, uh, much more prevalent than it has been in the past. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that the incident management teams and wildland fire do have done very well over the past few decades is to present themselves as apolitically as possible so that when we give guidance, you're not viewing it through a political lens. And that's becoming tougher and tougher to do because people are wearing their political lens all the time. And so um, now we're starting to, to, I think, feel those effects. And that has a definite, um, uh, it's a definite detriment to communicating to the public about what actions they should take during an emergency, during a crisis. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the more studies we have on this, uh, the better, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely something that you, you can see and that feels different, um, even if we don't have the numbers and the science yet to prove it. Erica Fisher, just to bring you in on this, any observations you have about that? And I, um, you pointed out to me that um, offline that that also this part of the West is a place that has a tradition of anti-vaccination um, concern. And so now we have another type of, um, I don't know how you want to characterize it, but an, another impediment perhaps to clear science communication, not just on the fire side, but also on the public health side. What's your take on, on this? Is it possible? I don't want to despair and say it's not possible to get a message through that's clear but at the same time, it just seems like we have to be, our game has to be much sharper as researchers to understand all of the different impediments and static to getting a clear message through. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it is just, um, you know, understanding who's living in these communities. Um, so, you know, when I was doing work in, in, in Paradise, California, and, you know, it's, um, these, you know, Paradise is an affordable solution to living in California. Um, so, you know, California real estate is incredibly expensive. Um, people who live in, in Paradise are choosing to live in the woods. Um, you know, they're not living in Sacramento. They're not living in Chico. They're living in Paradise. Um, and so you kind of have this libertarian streak of amongst the residents um, in some of these areas. And so... I would say I think the biggest the biggest challenge is right like reaching the community. Um, you know, we we talk about a lot in in 
you know, disaster science realm of community resilience, that what your neighbor does is going to have an impact on you. We saw this in the 2014 South Napa earthquake um, that we would see some buildings damaged. The building next door was retrofitted, but it couldn't be reopened because its neighbor um, hadn't retrofitted for earthquakes and was kind of threatening, you know, it, there was, you know, a, a, per, a wall that could have fallen over on its building. Um, but I feel, I, I personally feel that wildfire kind of takes it to the next level. Um, it really needs to be a community effort with regards to mitigation. And you're not just mitigating once. It's not just about having the right roof tiles on or the correct vent during your construction, but you need to clear your property every year. You have to do it constantly. Um, so if you're in this community where, um, you know, it's people are just want to be left alone, um, then how do you regulate this type of um, mitigation? How do you enforce this type of mitigation on private property? Um, how do you bring people together to really show that, hey, if you don't, if you don't do this, you are opening up your neighbor to a level of risk that they're not comfortable with. Um, and it's, I, I feel like this is the, the ultimate challenge for our, for our mm. field of researchers is, um, is, is understanding the people who live in these communities working with them very closely and being able to communicate with them. Um, I'd also say that, you know, all of our risk maps are for the wildland. Um, they don't consider homes as fuel load. Um, so, you know, if, if you hear like a lot of the interviews that came out of Paradise that people talk about the explosions, this was the explosions of mm -hmm. um, gas tanks, um, you know, that people had on their private properties. Um, and so, you know, how does that impact the risk to the community? Um, so we don't have um, we don't have proper levels and measurement of risk for our our communities in our wildland urban interfaces, and we're we're clearly not doing a good job of communicating with the residents of these communities about mitigation, evacuation, trust, um, and so you know it, it's it, there is a huge hurdle. Um, I'm not totally pessimistic about this. I think that, you know, a lot of these communities are, um, people love them. There's a lot of emotional ties to them. Um, and I think that, you know, um, it's just going to be a different approach than we've, we've ever dealt with, with other hazards. Erica Fisher, let me stay with this for a second, because uh, in America's history, there were times when um, both the lending industry and the insurance industry have played crucial roles in influencing public policy. I'm thinking here of urban fire specifically, but I think there are also wildland fire examples of this, and there's certainly coastal examples of this. Um, I think many of us have grown a little bit um, concerned that that those industries are not playing the role that that they could be to force code adoption, new zoning, greater truth telling what you're talking about let's call you know if this is no longer a wildland but it's a suburb and and paradise if you know i had a chance to go there and what you saw was a city surrounded by woods that had been completely destroyed um 
do you have any hope that those those industries can play a role here? And I guess my broader question is, is there any hope for code change and more truth telling and description here? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you're about to go on the record with your opinion of the fire insurance industry. I'm just letting know. you know. It's OK. I know, it's I know. OK. Gonna, honestly, I would love for the insurance industry to play a bigger role in this. Um, and I do a lot of work on the earthquake side. And I know on that side they would love it as well, um, that there is a push um, by the by the insurance industry to to have this done. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, at least like in earthquake engineering. You know, we've we've as structural engineers, we've developed codes that or developed processes of designing buildings that are beyond the code. Um, hardly anyone, hardly any building owner takes up on it. All right, so there needs to be a financial incentive in order to do this, and, or there needs to be a law. Um, and that's really the only way it's going to happen. Um, we've, we've been kind of screaming from the rooftops that you know unreinforced masonry buildings are horrible and earthquakes, um, you know, uh, that non-ductile concrete buildings and soft story buildings are horrible and earthquakes. It took ordinances in Northern California and Southern California for the to make building owners actually retrofit their buildings. So it has to, it has to be a law um, or it needs to be um, there needs to be a, a short-term financial incentive. Uh, Long-term financial incentive, like we, you know, we live in a society and in the country, um, and I'm probably getting this statistic wrong, but what like, like the average American has like $400 in their savings account. We hear this all the time. Like we don't think long-term, we're not a long-term society. Um, we, there needs to be a, a short-term incentive, whether that's, um, you know, your, your insurance, uh, you know, cost per month or whether there's a law and they're literally going to placard your building telling telling everyone that it's unsafe um, if you don't do it. So um, I would, you know, I, I think that there are um, success stories though. Um, I think, you know, the town of Ashland, Oregon is a success story. Um, you know, there's there was a, you know, a champion uh, in the town of um, Ashland who's a, a legislator and um, they took it upon themselves to kind of just, just change the way that they approached fires. Um, I will say a lot of that was motivated by tourism. Um, so a lot of these fire affected areas in Oregon are, you know, we have a huge recreational tourism industry and the Willamette National Forest is on fire and that's where a lot of this happens. So um, there, there um, hopefully there is, you know, people recognize that the state's gonna lose money. Um, you know, these small towns that kind of thrive on recreational tourism are gonna lose money. And, um, that you know we have to make a change we and it has to happen um but there there are success stories out there i don't want to seem all doom and gloom but um you know i am i am hopeful jim let me bring you in on this i mean erica's laying out there some um real interesting possibilities for structural change here uh, i think many of us are a little suspicious that a single event can drive a policy revolution but erica's shown some examples maybe some piecemeal kinds of kinds of things. Um, this Ashland case sounds very interesting. What, what are your thoughts on this, Jim? I think you're muted, Jim. Sorry about that. Um, I, 
I do think it is possible for single events to to drive change. I mean, we saw it um, with a lot of um, force policy and law after um, the big uh, blow up of 1910. Um, we saw it after the 2000 fire season with the passage of the uh, uh, National Fire Plan and uh, some some related kinds of laws and uh, definitely definitely some big policy changes there. Uh, we haven't kept up with that though. We've let those slide uh, since then in, in many ways. Um, but you know, it's it's in, in me, I think it's going to have to come from the bottom up this time. It can't just be folks in D.C. sitting around reacting to what's going on. It has to be people who are saying, "Hey, um, there's a change that's going on out here. We need to figure out how we're going to react to it. We need to figure out how to better prepare for the ramifications that are coming. So let's let's get something done." And I think we're we're getting close to that in in some areas of the country. Uh, some some areas probably not. Um, but uh, you know, let me talk about a little bit about what Erica said about kind of that community that community dynamic. Um, and that also affects recovery too. Um, based on the fires I've been on where uh, significant losses have occurred, um, the communities that come together and um, create support for one another recover much more quickly and better than the communities that are kind of based on that this individualistic uh, attitude. Uh, it's much easier to talk to politicians and insurance companies and housing contractors if you're a group and you're sharing information with what's going on than it is if you're an individual and you're kind of operating by yourself. Uh, you just have more pull and more influence as a group. And uh, I, I think that you'll see that play out over the, the course of the next couple of years with the fires that are going on right now. Some communities will pull together and uh, uh, recover uh, in a much better fashion than, than others. And I don't know that we have a lot of study on that. I haven't seen anything about how those kinds of uh, community dynamics affect recovery, but I think it would be interesting uh, just based on my experience. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we'll have to be, be watching all of that stuff uh, going forward. Um, I really, really appreciate the earthquake stuff too. Um, uh, we're, we're in the Cascadia subduction zone, zone just like you are. And uh, I think fire and earthquake, uh, maybe we should start thinking about those things together instead of separately. Uh, on COVID calls, we're only allowed to do two disasters at the same time, Jim. So I'm afraid <laughs> we're going to have to leave. The seismic is going to, I have yet to take on a triple disaster discussion. Uh, well, that's not true. We talked about Fukushima. Oh, well, I guess we can go. To, okay, Jim, you're in the good. I, I correct myself there on, on that. But, and I'm trying to, I shouldn't, you know, I mean, we're having a, a lighter moment here, but what we're really talking about is I, I hope, I think, sea change in the way that people no longer treat these as black swan type of events. And I think it comes back to Erica Kulagoski's earlier point about a real rumination on this point about the unprecedented. And um, we just have to put that word aside and really look at the at the data we have in front of us about the world that's that's unfolding. Uh, we're almost up on time, but Erica Kulagoski, you're, um, you're about to leave the United States and go to Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about things you see in the policymaking apparatus over there around fire that we could be attentive to here in the United States right now? So um, a lot comes to mind. I'll focus on a few things um, and I'm sure I'm missing, I'll, I'm missing a lot too. 
Um, what's really interesting is the way that they, um, I, I wanna talk about research and I also wanna talk about communication. So first they've worked very hard on um, a, a communication policy nationally um, and a guidance on how to standardize systems, especially how to standardize messaging. And so I noticed this for bushfires, they're, especially this last season, 2019 into 20, their um, messages are quite effective and they follow social science research. Um, so they've done the work, they've pulled it together, um, it's in their guidance and is now kind of a national way to communicate bushfire evacuation warnings across the country, which is something pretty amazing and um, not something necessarily that we're doing here in the States. If you go look at how Oregon is communicating evacuation orders to how California is communicating orders, one has a ready, set, go, one uses the warning order. It, it's different, um, even from state to state, um, even also from community to community at times. And then the other thing I wanna point out too um, is, is the their Bushfire Natural Hazards CRC, which is a research center where um, the government has funded research. They just renewed it for another 10 years and they have projects from fire detection to, to um, structural issues, to communication, um, a bunch of different, even recovery. And so all of their projects link researchers to practitioners on the ground. You have to have that linkage. And so then their research uh, goes right into practice because of that nice linkage. And it's a, it's a place where everyone can go to understand what they're doing for bushfire. And then it has like a, you know, an actual result and outcomes. And as I was thinking about that, as I'm seeing on Twitter, people talking about, well, we need a fire consortium here in the United States. Who's doing work on wildfires? Who's bringing it all together? And how are we then putting it into practice? As you're saying, policies, making recommendations, putting it into codes and standards. That's There, there are um, consortiums coming together in California, but there's not kind of a centralized one for the country that's helping to develop these policies. Let's um, just you know, thank you for that uh, international um, comparative and that again, I think bringing it this really compelling idea of, and can you say again what the name of that cent that research center was? Because I think everything should be on the table right now for American policymakers to be looking at better ways to tie what we invest our federal taxpayer dollars in to real outcomes in the disaster space. What was it called, Erica? Nat Bushfire and Natural Hazards CRC. CRC, okay. So we really are up on time. Unfortunately, we have um, this conversation could could keep going. I, maybe I can just borrow thirty seconds for a quick hit. Erica Fisher, public infrastructure out there in Oregon, um, is is it under great threat right now? Is there enough money to protect it? Is is it in good shape, or is this going to be a bad situation just like we saw in California? 
Uh, well, just as, as Jim mentioned, you know, right at the beginning, we're seeing a lot of housing damage. Um, and while that, you know, kind of on the face of it, um, seems like just, you know, we just kind of replace the, the, the housing, the, you know, the, the houses, or we allow them to rebuild, um, this could have kind of cascading effects in our communities. Um, so uh, what we saw in California is that, you know, in, in areas where we had kind of high density of damaged homes, we saw damage to the water um, distribution system, um, the, the pipelines that connected to the homes themselves. Um, we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of the, the water utilities in these areas and particularly in Salem, um, are kind of watching out to make sure that their water supply is not contaminated um, due to the fires. Um, that could be a, a huge issue if if the the water supply is is contaminated, particularly in a place like Salem, where they would have to invest a lot of money in order to to kind of deal with with that issue. Um, but then also, you know, so much is linked to housing. Um, people aren't there to to live. Who is there to to work in the local um, stores or support the local economy or um, even just where's your tax base for your schools? Um, who's teaching the kids? You know, um, so you know, even if our um, our schools are remote, you know, we do actually need people living in the town um, to support all of this local infrastructure. So it'll be um, really interesting to kind of watch that recovery phase, um, how much out migration we have from these communities and, and how many people come back um, to rebuild in these towns. Jim, I'm gonna give you the, the last word and, and you have a lot of experience talking about post fire um, issues, helping uh, people cope with maybe some of the after effects of, of these issues. And right now, I think we're in a tremendous period of national stress. So I'm not gonna ask you to craft a message on the spot, but I do wonder how you're communicating with people about stress. I mean, I'm in New Jersey and I'm worried about you all. And I, I think it's, it's this COVID, there's a background of COVID, it's hurricanes, it's the fires, it's the election coming up. There's a lot out there in the system to be anxious about. Any tips about communicating in an environment like that? Well, I, I think, you know, if we're, if we're uh, going back to the original beginning of our conversation, uh, I'm tempted to use the word unprecedented. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that um, it will be in the future, you know. Uh, right. Um, it's just... New normal. Part, part of managing stress is, is becoming resilient. Part of being resilient is finding the right places to take a break to get a rest, to catch your breath. And for a lot of people, firefighters, emergency managers, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, law enforcement, tons of folks out there in the country right now, they're not getting that break or they're not getting enough of a break to maintain that resiliency to deal with the stresses that are happening. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just, uh, I just don't have a good answer for that. I, I do know that in our wildland fire world, um, getting back to what Erica said, we recognize that um, in the past, what we've tried to do is, is um, educate ourselves as we go along and we learn new things. But now the, the speed of change, <clears throat> the level of complexity is outpacing our ability to learn. And we can no longer do it by ourselves. 
And I think um, like many other folks are gonna have to realize, we're gonna have to pull together. We need acad academics, we need some of our sister um, groups to help us out and figure these things out. Um, we're not going to be able to identify all the problems and find solutions by ourselves. And um, as I've always said, you know, as well as society deals with COVID, as well as society deals with climate change, that will have a much greater effect on how firefighters deal with fire and how doctors deal with COVID and how uh, we get things done in both situations. So um, it's it's a it's a big chore. Um, I'm not, as Erica Fisher said, I'm not totally pessimistic, uh, but we have a lot of work to do. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 from the doctor's perspective out of Dallas, Texas. We'll be talking with Bonnie Rewat and Chris Strawn, uh, and that's going to be a really great conversation. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank Erica Kuligowski, Erica Fisher, and Jim Whittington for spending this time today. And I realize I kept you late, too. It was a really good discussion, and I think a lot was learned as we're thinking about these fires, but also thinking about... Um, this future that's coming uh, with all of these realities that are being being shown right now. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I right, stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.